very strict rules of decorum for how you may act in the judge's chambers or in the courtroom in front of the judge. In particular, you must listen very carefully, especially because they speak very softly. It's a cultural thing. You have to listen carefully, and they expect you to pay close attention and not ask them to repeat anything. You may speak only when spoken spoken to, which is annoyingly frustrating when something happens that you want to object to. But there is no room, no freedom for objection. You may speak only when spoken to, and when you speak, you must answer the exact question that was asked and nothing more. When you speak, you must use the title, my Lord, or for Westerners like me who have problems calling someone on earth, my Lord, your honor, they settled for that. But this is my experience with royalty. We're going to have another experience with royalty here this morning in John chapter 19. And if you need a Bible or a pen, please just raise your hand and Becca will come around and bring one to you. Uh, there should be outlines for the sermon on your seat. In the church Bible, we're going to be on page 588. 588. This is from John 19. And the last section, the end of John 18, established for us the fact that Jesus is a king. He is the king of the Jews. In 18, verse 33, Pilate, Pontius Pilate, the Roman governor, said, asked Jesus, are you the king of the Jews? And in 36 and 37, they had the discussion about what his kingdom was like, where it was from, what the source of his authority was. In verse 39, Pilate asked the Jews, do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? So there's this discussion with Jesus about Jesus, about how he is the king, but his kingdom is not of this world. But this king, King Jesus, the king of the Jews, he has power to save people, unlike any earthly king. Now, on page 588, we're in John chapter 19 as we continue our study of John. And we're going to see in these first 16 verses how they treat this king. King is a very important theme here. It's repeated five times in these 16 verses. But in addition to just the word king, we've got a number of other royalty type words that are repeated all throughout. We've got crown, robe, authority, judgment seat, son of God, and Caesar. Along the way, as, as we go, we're going to learn what not to do and why. How not to treat your king. Let's pray, and then I'll read John 19, starting at verse 1. King Jesus, we bow before you, for you are our Lord, and we trust in you more than anyone on earth. And we trust that you have by your spirit, written these words for us and that you are still speaking to us and you will speak to us today as we read your word. Please help us to understand it. Help us to be changed. Help us to bring our lives into greater conformity to you, that we might be rescued and that we might have the life that you desire for us to have. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. John chapter 19, starting at verse 1. Then Pilate took Jesus and flogged him. And the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns 
and put it on his head and arrayed him in a purple robe. They came up to him saying, Hail, King of the Jews, and struck him with their hands. Pilate went out again and said to them, See, I am bringing him out to you, that you may know that I find no guilt in him. So Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe. Pilate said to them, Behold the man. When the chief priests and the officers saw him, they cried out, Crucify him! Crucify him! Pilate said to them, Take him yourselves and crucify him, for I find no guilt in him. The Jews answered him, We have a law, and according to that law he ought to die because he has made himself the Son of God. When Pilate heard this statement, he was even more afraid. He entered his headquarters again and said to Jesus, Where are you from? But Jesus gave him no answer. So Pilate said to him, You will not speak to me? Do you not know that I have authority to release you and authority to crucify you? Jesus answered him, You would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given you from above. Therefore, he who delivered me over to you has the greater sin. From then on, Pilate sought to release him, but the Jews cried out, If you release this man, you are not Caesar's friend. Everyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. So when Pilate heard these words, he brought Jesus out and sat down on the judgment seat at a place called the Stone Pavement and in Aramaic, Gabbatha. Now it was the day of preparation of the Passover. It was about the sixth hour. He said to the Jews, Behold your king! They cried out, Away with him! Away with him! Crucify him! Pilate said to them, Shall I crucify your king? The chief priests answered, We have no king but Caesar. So he delivered him over to them to be crucified. This is the word of God. And I would like to show us four ways not to treat your king. First, speak what is literally true without meaning it. This is the first thing. Speak what is literally true without meaning it. We see this in the first three verses. First, verse one, Pilate takes Jesus and flogs him. And if Pilate deserves any amount of fairness, it's this. He's probably not flogging Jesus because he hates Jesus. He's probably flogging Jesus because he wants to set Jesus free. Because he finds no guilt in Jesus. And he thinks that flogging Jesus will get the chief priest's attention and will get them on board with acquittal. Because he's showing them, look, I'll beat him up a little bit for you. Will that make you happy so that you will let him go? In verse 2, the soldiers make this crown and they put this robe on Jesus. They do it in utter mockery and abuse, not to honor him. And in verse 3, they speak what is literally true. Hail, King of the Jews. But it's dripping with venom and sarcasm. They strike him with their hands. This is after he's been flogged. They strike him with their hands, the end of verse 3. This is an act of, of insult and abuse, it's very personal. They speak what is literally true, but their actions show they don't truly mean it. All around, Pilate, the soldiers, and even the chief priests. How does this apply to us? 
Well, it's really easy for us to condemn these Roman soldiers, I think, and Pilate, but consider how we do the same thing today. Consider how we speak what is literally true and we dress Jesus up all fancy and we hold him up in public. We even will speak well of him. We will say what is true, but in the end, we ignore or ridicule his rule over us. We say he is the king, but we do not act as though he is the king. How do you and I proclaim him as king, but live as though he is not? Sometimes we sing to him. We exalt him in our songs. We, we proclaim what is true. But then later in the service, we get bored of hearing his word spoken to us when it is preached. And we get bored because we want to sing and speak what is true, but we don't want to hear from him and submit to his rule that is being proclaimed over us. Maybe other times we tell other people that he is the Lord and the king, but then we go and curse people and gossip about them with those very same mouths with which we said that Jesus was king. Or maybe we say that only Jesus will satisfy us, but then when the sun goes down and we're all alone and nobody's looking, so we think, we set aside his commands, we revel in self-pleasure, we look at pornography, we turn aside to all kinds of other things. Maybe we proclaim Jesus as the Prince of Peace, but we hold grudges against other people in the church. And we avoid uncomfortable relationships. Maybe we call Jesus our kind and loving master, but we set aside his command to discipline our children. We repeat instructions to our children four or five times, and then in the end we choose to get mad instead of lovingly restoring the child to obedience. And I am so guilty of this myself because I get tired at the end of the day and I get inconsistent in my discipline because something happens that wasn't according to my plan for the evening, but I don't act as though Jesus is king. I want to be king of my night, and so I set aside his rule. How do you know if your heart is far from Jesus? You know it by your actions. Do you dress Jesus up all pretty? and then flog him? Do you hail him as king, but then live your life apart from his standards? Friends, those who love this king will obey his commands. That's the first way not to treat your king, is to speak what is literally true without truly meaning it. Number two, second way not to treat your king is to value what is popular more than what is true. Value what is popular more than what is true. In verse 4, Pilate brings Jesus out to show that he finds no guilt. And he's so focused on his, the political tension going on with the Jews that he chooses not to simply acquit Jesus, which he has the power to do. He could just acquit him there and then and set him free. But instead, he parades the man out. Behold the man, verse 5. Look at what I've done to him. Isn't this enough? I want to be careful not to cause a riot in the process of doing what might be right. In verse 6, they shout out, crucify him two times. This public venue isn't working so well. And so in verse 7, the Jews shout out that we have a law, and according to that law, he ought to die because he has made himself the son of God. 
You see, they don't consider whether it might be true or not that he is the Son of God. They're just concerned that he claimed to be the Son of God, and therefore, by their understanding of the law, he must die. And the Jews are now operating as a mob. And so in verse 8, when Pilate hears this new charge, when he hears this statement, he is even more afraid. This new claim that Jesus claimed to be the Son of God makes Pilate more afraid. Because he was already thinking of Jesus as the king of the Jews. You have to understand, the king of the Jews, that's a pretty tame title. It's it's localized to this region, this small little province where the Jews are. Okay, this guy claims to be king of these people. Okay, that's that's a, a deal, but it's not that big of a deal. In fact, not far after this, uh, Caesar would name uh, Herod Antipas king of the Jews. So it's a title that's been understood before. But now that he hears that Jesus is claiming to be the son of God as well, that's not a local claim to be a ruler of these few disregarded people in a small Roman province. The son of God is a global claim. Because you must understand that Julius, the first Caesar, proclaimed himself to be divine. And he was the first Caesar to take on the title of God. But then when that God died and his heir and son took over the kingdom he took on a divine name augustus augustus caesar and part of his claim that went out throughout the empire is hail augustus son of caesar son of god and now augustus has passed as well the current emperor is tiberius caesar but he just like his predecessors would not be very happy to have a rival to the title of emperor, the title son of God, especially someone who came up through this province on Pilate's watch. So Pilate is terrified about this. What is the point? The point here in verses four through eight is that all along Pilate refuses what is right in favor of what is popular. He chooses what is popular with the chief priests. He chooses what is popular with the Jewish mob so that he doesn't have riots in his hands, and he chooses what is going to be popular with his emperor over him. But as for this innocent man, with whom he has said three times now that I find no guilt in him, he will not release him. How does this apply to us? We face the same temptations today. Children, maybe you experienced this already, where... You may struggle to do what your friends or other people around you want you to do instead of doing what God wants you to do. And as you get older, it gets harder and harder. We want to do what's popular, what other people want us to do. Maybe some of us who are older, uh, have you been willing to reconsider the Bible's authenticity simply because you had a dynamic, popular professor who started throwing around some crazy ideas. Or maybe as parents, you have made choices with your children in such a way that your parents wouldn't be upset with you or your family will understand you. You don't want the grandparents to disagree with your parenting choices. You don't want your neighbors or fellow people in your community to think you're strange. And even in our day, in our culture, the issue of same-sex marriage is coming more and more to the forefront. And while uh, 
all, all kinds of people may struggle with, with same-sex attraction and other such things, and we want to be able to talk about that and, and welcome such people. We need to be honest about what the Bible says about marriage between one man and one woman. And the time is coming when the truth that the Bible says will not only be unpopular, we're already there, but the truth will be considered unethical. Are you ready for that? Are you ready to be considered as one who submits to King Jesus and what he says to be accused of hate crimes, of being prejudicial, something akin to racism or classicism? Those who love this king will love his truth. They will not put him on the chopping block so they can have more friends. And why do we really do what's popular? Why do we really do what's popular? It's because we fear people's power that they might have over us, even if it's just the power of what they think of us. And that's where we go in the third point. So the second, how not to treat your king is to value what is popular more than what is true. Third, when you're scared, take heart in your own authority. Focus on where the power lies. This is what not to do. When you're scared, take heart in your own authority. So in verse 9, because we're just told in verse 8 that Pilate was more afraid by this claim that Jesus was the Son of God, Pilate takes him back into the headquarters and demands an answer to the question of Jesus' origin. Where are you from? In other words, who are you? Who do you think you are? And Pilate wants to keep this issue local, not global, so that he won't get in trouble with Caesar. And Jesus demonstrates his authority over Pilate even further by remaining silent. Here he is in the face of the judge, the Roman governor, and he won't even answer his question. Verse 9, Jesus gave no answer. And that just makes Pilate matter because it reminds Pilate even more how he's not the one who's really in control here. So look at what Pilate does. As he gets scared, as he gets mad, verse 10, he says, You will not speak to me. Do you not know that I have the authority here? I have authority to release you, and I have authority to crucify you. There's a bunch of hot air here, because he could have released Jesus by now if he really wanted to. But he goes back to rest in his authority, to remind himself of his authority, to make sure Jesus knows of his authority because Pilate's feeling out of control. And so in verse 11, Jesus answers him. And what Jesus does is he appeals to a higher authority. This is the source of Jesus's rest and confidence. It's that Pilate, your authority has been given to you from above. Verse 11. And if it had not been given to you, you would have no authority. You are just a passive player in this drama. This situation fell into your lap. And that's why he says at the end of verse 11 that he who delivered me over to you has the greater sin because those who have played the active role in turning me over have even more guilt before God. This thing just fell in your lap, Pilate. You are powerless is what he's saying. You see, Jesus has nothing to prove. He has nothing to prove. Therefore, he doesn't need to control the situation. He doesn't need to get insecure. He doesn't need to get nervous. He doesn't even have to one-up his captor. He can just trust in where the real authority is, and Pilate just rages and splutters over it. How does this apply to us? If you want people to know how afraid you are, 
in any situation, just focus on how much authority you have. That's all you have to do. Focus on how much authority you have and everybody will know how afraid you are. In other words, share every opinion you have about anything. I mean, I'm serious. Share every opinion and make sure that everybody understands what you think and that they know that you have authority to speak and nitpick into every situation. They'll know how scared you really are. Another opportunity is when you're in conflict, always appeal to yourself. Appeal to yourself. It really helps when you take offense at people and you say, why did you do that to me? Me. Why do you do this to me? You shouldn't do this to me. Appeal to your own authority. Finally, here's the last part of the recipe. Do what must be done, especially if nobody else will do it. I find myself horrifyingly, more and more frequently, answering my children's why questions. I'll say something and they'll say why. And I'm starting to say what I have always hated and I've made fun of this for years. Because I'm your father. (laughs) And what I mean by that is I'm scared right now and I don't know what to say and I don't have a better answer for you. So just do it because I have authority. Last weekend, I had a, a great opportunity to go to a conference with a, a, a man who is an author named Kevin DeYoung. He did a one-day conference to help launch his new book uh, about the authority of the scripture. It was really good. It was excellent. And I had the privilege, the night before the conference, I had the privilege to have dinner with Kevin DeYoung and six other pastors. There was a banquet. And uh, we were there together, and I wanted to get to know this guy. I really respect his writing. Uh, just a terrific writer, good thinker. And I was so scared. I was so scared of this new environment, meeting this new person who's pretty important. He's written all these books. And I wanted to make a good impression. And it's funny. I met him. He was just a normal guy. He was awkward in conversation like I am. And he he liked sports and talked about normal things. But anyway, um, I was so scared that this small little thing came up in the discussion. And I decided to disagree and pick a fight with Kevin DeYoung. And I just started nitpicking. And as even as I'm doing it, I'm like, why am I doing this? And please understand me. I'm not saying that it's wrong to disagree with people. There are times when it is fully appropriate and is needed to disagree. But fighting aggressively about minor little things without giving someone the benefit of the doubt and without asking questions to try to understand first, that is usually cowardly and controlling. And that's what I did because I was scared. That's usually what we do when we're scared. That is not how to treat your king. I'm not saying Kevin DeYoung is my king. But in honoring Jesus, our king, and living life before him. Those who love this king, King Jesus, they are willing to let him be in control of their lives. They are willing to rest in the higher authority. And often this means that they simply won't fight for their rights. That's the third point. When you're scared, this is how not to treat your king. Take heart in your own authority. Finally, how not to treat your king. From verses 12 to 16, we see this fourth point. What not to do is to befriend the king on earth instead of the king in heaven. 
In verse 12, Pilate is even more scared of Jesus now, so he tries to release him. It says, from then on, he sought to release him, but the Jews cry out. They play their trump card. They say, if you release this man, you are not Caesar's friend. Everyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. So because Jesus makes himself a king, he's not a friend of Caesar. And if you release the man who makes himself a king, you are not Caesar's friend. And you know, they're actually right. They're absolutely right. If you release Jesus, if you side with Jesus, you are not Caesar's friend. All must choose Jesus or Caesar. In verse 13, Pilate feels really threatened now. He's really insecure. He wants to remind everybody of how much authority he has. So he pulls out all the pomp he can muster. When he heard these words, he brought Jesus out. He sat down on the judgment seat. Can you feel the pomp? At a place called the stone pavement. (laughs) And in Aramaic, Gabbatha. Do you feel like bowing before this man? (laughs) Yeah, he's trying to remind everyone who he thinks is in charge. And then in verse 14, it's fascinating where John goes next. He reminds us that it was the day of preparation of the Passover. And it, uh, it was about the sixth hour. It was the day of preparation because the next day was a Sabbath. It was the Sabbath day during the Passover feast, which made it a special Sabbath day. And John puts in this very subtle reminder to us that there are only two sides in the drama. And there have always been only two sides. Because if you remember what the Passover was all about, it was the remembrance of when God's people were brought out of slavery, out of Egypt in the book of Exodus. And on their last night in Egypt, God went through all of Egypt to kill all the firstborn. And he went through by every house in the land. And when, if he saw that someone had killed a lamb in place as a substitute and had painted the blood on the doorframe, he would pass over and not kill the firstborn sons in that house. And he'd go to the next house. And there were only two sides. And Exodus talks about it this way, repeats it over and over again. God killed the Egyptian firstborn, but he set free ours because of the the lamb that was sacrificed for us. And John puts in this subtle reminder that it has always been the case that there are only two sides. There's Jesus and Caesar. There's Jesus or Pharaoh. There's Jesus or you name it, or the president. There's Jesus or there's your reputation. There's Jesus or there's your money. There's Jesus or there's pleasure. You cannot serve two masters. Either you will love one and hate the other or you will serve one and despise the other. This is going on right here. And so in 15, we see where the Jewish chief priest's allegiance is. Away with him, away with him, crucify And Pilate says, should I crucify your king? And then here's the climax of the passage. The chief priests answered, we have no king but Caesar. So he delivers him over to them to be crucified. You see, you must choose one king. And they here choose their king. And, you know, if it wasn't so sad, this would be funny. 
because we've seen all throughout John, the Jews do not love Caesar. Caesar is not their friend. Caesar is the oppressor. Caesar is the one that they wish did not have control over their region and their people and their land and their freedom. But their hatred of Jesus blinds them and leads them to irrationality and to blasphemy. To They are slandering God because God is their king. God is supposed to be their king. And in this statement right here, they are rejecting God as their king. How does this apply to us? Friends, some of us here in this room profess allegiance to Jesus, but our lives betray the truth. We are happy, more than happy, to set Jesus aside whenever it's convenient to do so, whenever our true king comes down the pike. We'll debate philosophy with people, but we won't share our lives because we have the wrong king. We want others to change, but we won't change because we've given ourselves to the wrong king. We take sin lightly and we dismiss holiness quickly because we have bowed the knee to the wrong king. We read our Facebook news feed more than we read the Bible. We're embarrassed by some of the things that King Jesus had to say. That, what? The only way to know God is through Jesus? That Jesus is the Son of God? That we who are religious, who are trying to serve God, we might be children of the devil? That our efforts to do good and to please God will never work? That we love to hide in darkness so we can hold on to our evil? That no one can come to Jesus unless the Father draws them? That apart from Jesus, we have no life and can do nothing? These things are not easy to swallow. And so we go on our way, worshiping our true king. We make excuses. We hedge the truth. We qualify things so people don't think we're too crazy. And in the process, we hail Jesus as our king, but we dress him up and we flog him. And we do this in the classroom. And we do this in the graduate symposium. And we do this in the faculty lounge. And we do this in the marketplace. And we do this in the privacy of our own homes. We want peace and security at the cost of truth and godliness. Here's the thing, though. Though this is not the way to treat your king, this whole passage, these 16 verses, are really about two things. Two things are more clear than anything else. And those two things are these. First, the innocent one is convicted. Second, the guilty ones go free. That is abundantly clear. John goes out of his way to demonstrate both of these things. First, the innocent is convicted. Three times, Pilate, the governor, says of Jesus, I find no guilt in him. I find no guilt in him. I find no guilt in him. This King Jesus is the innocent one, and he's convicted. And there is no doubt here who are the guilty ones. Three times, The chief priests shout out, crucify him, 
Two times they say, away with him. They also say, he ought to die. They say, we have no king but Caesar. And the point is not that the Jews are guilty for Jesus' death, but all of us are in that same, those same shoes. So for those who speak what is literally true without truly meaning it, for those who value what is popular more than what is true, for those who take heart in their own authority when they are scared, for those who befriend the earthly king instead of the heavenly king, please know this. Verse 16. So he delivered him over to them to be crucified. You see, Jesus was delivered over. Jesus went along with it willingly so he could receive you. And friends, no one had authority over this King Jesus except his Father in heaven. No one took this king's life away from him. He gave it willingly. And he did that so you and I, who are guilty, we could know God and go free. And this has been the message of John all throughout his gospel. Back in chapter 1, listen to what he said. In verse 11, he, Jesus, the word of God, the one who is God, he came to his own and his own people did not receive him. The climax of that's right here in chapter 19. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. You can become his child today. You can become his child every day for the rest of your life. All you have to do is receive this king. Treat him as your king, the true king, the only king. And believe in his name. Renounce your right to make your own name. Renounce anything else that you trust in to give you life. Because friends, those who love this king, Jesus, they will befriend him above all others. And they are no longer slaves, servants, vassals. They are sons, brothers, co-heirs with him. In glory. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we bow before you, the great King, and before your Son, Jesus, whom you appointed the heir of all things, the one who would inherit all nations, the one before whom every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that he is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And so we now proclaim you as our king. Please help us not to speak what is true without meaning it. Help us not to value what is popular more than what is true. Help us not to take heart our own authority when we're scared and help us to befriend you more than any earthly king. And Lord, Though we fail to do these things, our hope is not in our ability to do them, but our hope is in the fact that you, Jesus, willingly laid down your life for us to bring us to yourself.